Chapter Thirteen, Part Two, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen, Suspense, Part Two. Now the daily distance which every four-man party had to average from Hut Point to its turning point and back to Hut Point, so as to be on full rations all the way, was only eight point four geographical miles. From Hut Point to the latitude in which he was last seen, 87 degrees 32 minutes south, Scott had averaged more than 10 geographical miles a day. Taking into consideration the advanced latitude, 87 degrees 32 minutes south, at which the second return party had left Scott, and the extremely good daily averages these two parties had marched on the plateau up to this point, namely 12.3 geographical miles a day, Seeing also that the first return party had averaged 14.2 geographical miles on their return from 85 degrees 3 minutes south to one ton depot, and the second return party had averaged 11.2 geographical miles on their return from 87 degrees 32 minutes south to the same place, although one of the three men was seriously ill, it was supposed that all the previous estimates made for the return of the polar party were too late and that the opportunity to reach one-ton camp before them had been lost. Meanwhile the full rations for their return over the 140 miles statute from one ton to Hut Point were still at Hut Point. My orders were given to me by Atkinson and were verbal, as follows. 1. To take 24 days food for the two men and 21 days food for the two dog teams together with the food for the polar party. 2 to travel to one ton depot as fast as possible and leave the food there. 3. If Scott had not arrived at one ton depot before me, I was to judge what to do. 4. That Scott was not in any way dependent on the dogs for his return. 5. That Scott had given particular instructions that the dogs were not to be risked in view of the sledging plans for next season. Since it had proved impossible to take the depot of dog food, together with the full polar party rations to one ton before this, considering the unforeseen circumstances which had arisen, and seeing that this journey of the dog teams was not indispensable, being simply meant to bring the last party home more speedily, I do not believe that better instructions could have been given than these of Atkinson. I was eager to start as soon as the team which had come back from Cape Evans was rested, but a blizzard prevented this. On the morning of the 25th, it was thick as a hedge, but it cleared enough to pack sledges in the afternoon, and when we turned into our bags, we could see Observation Hill. We started at 2 a.m. that night. I confess I had my misgivings. I had never driven one dog, let alone a team of them. I knew nothing of navigation, and one ton was a 130 miles away, out in the middle of the barrier, and away from landmarks. And so, as we pushed our way out through the wind and drift that night, I felt there was a good deal to be hoped for, rather than to be expected. But we got along very well, Dimitri driving his team in front, as he did most of this journey, and picking up marks very helpfully with his sharp eyes. In the low temperatures we met, the glasses which I must wear were almost impossible, because of fogging. We took three boxes of dog biscuit from safety camp, and another three boxes from a point sixteen miles from hut point. Here we rested the dogs for a few hours and started again at 6 p.m. All the day the light was appalling and the wind strong, but to my great relief we found corner camp after four hours more travelling, the flag showing plainly 
though the cairn itself was invisible when a hundred yards away. This was the last place where there was any dog food on the route, and the dogs got a good feed after doing thirty-four miles statute for the day's run. This was more than we had hoped. The only disquieting fact was that both the sledge-meters which we had were working wrong. The better of the two seemed, however, to be marking the total mileage fairly correctly at present, though the hands which indicated more detailed information were quite at sea. We had no minimum thermometer, but the present temperature was minus four degrees. February 27th. Mount Terror has proved our friend today, for the slope just above the knoll has remained clear when everything else was covered, and we have steered by that behind us. It seemed, when we started in low drift, that we should pick up nothing, but by good luck, or good I don't know what, we have got everything. First the motor, then pony walls at ten miles, where we stopped and had a cup of tea. I wanted to do fifteen miles, but we have done eighteen and a half miles on the best running surface I have ever seen. After lunch we got a cairn, which we could not see twenty yards away after we had reached it, but which we could see for a long way on the southern horizon, against a thin strip of blue sky. We camped just in time to get the tent pitched before a line of drift we saw coming out of the sky hit us. It is now blowing a mild blizzard, and drifting. Forty-eight miles in two days is more than I expected. May our luck continue. Dogs pulling very fit, and not done up. February 28th. I had my first upset just after starting, the sledge capsizing on a great sastrugus like the ramp. Dimitri was a long way ahead, and all behind was very thick. I had to unload the sledge, for I could not right it alone. Just as I righted it, the team took charge. I missed the driving stick, but got on to the sledge with no hope of stopping them, and I was carried a mile to the south, leaving four boxes of dog food, the weekly bag, cooker and tent poles on the ground. The team stopped when they reached Dimitri's team and by then the gear was out of sight. We went back for it, and made good sixteen and three-quarter miles for the day on a splendid surface. The sun went down at eleven-fifteen, ten-fifteen A.T., mirage quite flat on top. After he had gone down, a great bonfire seemed to blaze out from the horizon. Now minus twenty-two degrees, and we used a candle for the first time. February twenty-ninth, Bluff Depot. If anybody had told me we could reach Bluff Depot nearly ninety miles in four days, I would not have believed it. We have had a good clear day with much mirage. Dogs a bit tired. The next three days' run took us to one ton. On the day we left Bluff Depot, which had been made a little more than a year ago, when certain of the ponies were sent home on the depot journey, but which no longer contained any provisions, we travelled twelve miles. There was a good light, and it was as warm as could be expected in March. The next day, March 2nd, we did nine miles after a cold and a sleepless night. Minus twenty-four degrees, and a mild blizzard from north-west, and quite thick. On the night of March 3rd, we reached one ton, heading into a strongish wind, with a temperature of minus twenty-four degrees. These were the first two days on which we had cold weather, but it was nothing to worry about for us and was certainly not colder than one could ordinarily have expected at this time of the year. Arrived at one ton, my first feeling was one of relief that the polar party had not been to the depot, and that therefore we had got their provisions out in time. The question of what we were to do in the immediate future was settled for us. For four days out of the six during which we were at one ton, the weather made travelling southwards, that is against the wind, either entirely impossible, or such that the chance of seeing another party at any distance was nil. 
On the two remaining days I could have run a day farther south and back again, with the possibility of missing the party on the way. I decided to remain at the depot, where we were certain to meet. On the day after we arrived at one ton, March 4th, Dimitri came to me and said that the dogs ought to be given more food since they were getting done and were losing their coats. They had, of course, done a great deal of sledging already this year. Dimitri had long experience of dog driving, and I had none. I thought, and I still think, he was right. I increased the dog ration, therefore, and this left us with thirteen more days' dog food, including that for March 4th. The weather was bad when we were at one ton, for when it was blowing the temperature often remained comparatively low, and when it was not blowing it dropped considerably, and I find my readings in my diary of minus 34 and minus 37 degrees at 8 p.m. Having no minimum thermometer, we did not know the night temperatures. On the other hand, I find an entry, Today is the first real good one we have had, only about minus 10 degrees, and the sun shining, and we have shifted the tent, dried our bags and gear a lot, and been pottering about all day. At this time, however, when we were at one ton, I looked upon these conditions as being a temporary cold snap. There was no reason then to suppose these were normal March conditions in the middle of the barrier, where no one had ever been at this time of year. I believe now they are normal. On the other hand, in our meteorological report, Simpson argues that they were abnormal for the barrier at this time of year. Since there was no depot of dog food at one ton, it was not possible to go farther south, except for the one day mentioned above, without killing dogs. My orders on this point were perfectly explicit. I saw no reason for disobeying them, and indeed it appeared that we had been wrong to hurry out so soon, before the time that Scott had reckoned that he would return, and that the polar party would really come in at the time Scott had calculated before starting rather than at the time we had reckoned from the data brought back by the last return party. From the particulars already given, it will be seen that I had no reason to suspect that the Polar Party could be in want of food. The Polar Party of five men had, according to our rations, plenty of food, either on their sledge or in the depots. In addition, they had a lot of pony meat depoted at Middle Glacier Depot, and onwards from there. Though we did not know it, the death of Evans at the foot of the Beardmore Glacier provided an additional amount of food for the four men who were then left. The full amount of oil for this food had been left in the depots, but we now know, what we did not know then, that some of it had evaporated. These matters are discussed in greater detail in the account of the return of the Polar Party and after. Thus I felt little anxiety for the Polar Party, but I was getting anxious about my companion. Soon after arrival at Wonton, it was clear that Dimitri was feeling the cold. He complained of his head, then his right arm and side were affected, and from this time onwards he found that he could do less and less with his right side. Still I did not worry much about it, and my decision as to our movements was not affected by this complication. I decided to allow eight days' food for our return, which meant that we must start on March 10th. March 10th, pretty cold night, minus 33 degrees, when we turned out at 8 a.m., getting our gear together, and the dogs more or less into order after their six days, was cold work, and we started in minus thirties and a head wind. The dogs were mad, stark staring lunatics. Dimitri's team wrecked my sledge-meter, and I left it lying on the ground a mile from one ton. All we could do was to hang on to the sledge and let them go. There wasn't a chance to go back, turn them or steer them. Dimitri broke his driving-stick. My team fought as they went. 
Once I was dragged with my foot pinned under my driving-stick, which was itself jammed in the grummet. Several times I only managed to catch on anywhere. This went on for six or seven miles, and then they got better. Our remaining sledge-meter was quite unreliable, but following our outward tracks, for it became thick and overcast, and judging by our old camping sites, we reckoned that we had done an excellent run of twenty-three to twenty-four miles, statute for the day. The temperature when we camped was only minus fourteen degrees. However, it became much colder in the night, and when we turned out it was so thick that I decided we must wait. At 2 p.m. on March the 11th there was one small patch of blue sky showing, and we started to steer by this. Soon it was blowing a mild blizzard, and we stopped after doing what I reckoned was eight miles, steering by trying to keep the wind on my ear, but I think we were turning circles much of the time. It blew hard and was very cold during the night, and we turned out on the morning of March the 12th to a blizzard with a temperature of minus 33 degrees. This gradually took off, and at 10 a.m. Dimitri said he could see the bluff, and we were right into the land, and therefore the pressure. This was startling, but later it cleared enough to reassure me, though Dimitri was so certain that during the first part of our run that day I steered east a lot. We did 25 to 30 miles this day, in drift and a temperature of minus 28 degrees. By now I was becoming really alarmed and anxious about Dimitri, who seemed to be getting much worse, and to be able to do less and less. Sitting on a sledge the next day, with a headwind and the temperature of minus thirty degrees, was cold. The land was clear when we turned out, and I could see that we must be far outside our course, but almost immediately it became foggy. We made in towards the land a good deal, and made a good run, but owing to the sledge-meter being useless and the bad weather generally during the last few days, I had a very hazy idea indeed where we were when we camped, having been steering for some time by the faint gleam of the sun through the mist. Just after camping, Dmitri suddenly pointed to a black spot which seemed to wave to and fro. We decided that it was the flag of the derelict motor near Corner Camp, which up to that time I thought was ten to fifteen miles away. This was a great relief, and we debated packing up again and going to it, but decided to stay where we were. It was fairly clear on the morning of March 14th, which was lucky, for it was now obvious that we were miles from Corner Camp, and much too near the land. The flag we had seen must have been a miraged piece of pressure, and it was providential that we had not made for it, and found worse trouble than we actually experienced. Try all I could that morning, my team, which was leading, insisted on edging westward. At last I saw what I thought was a cairn, but found out just in time that it was a haycock or mound of ice formed by pressure. By its side was a large open crevasse, of which about fifty yards of snow bridge had fallen in. For several miles we knew that we were crossing big crevasses by the hollow sound, and it was with considerable relief that I sighted the motor and then corner camp some two or three miles to the east of us. Dimitri had left his alpine rope there, and also I should have liked to have brought in Evan's sledge, but it would have meant about five miles extra, and I left it. I hope Scott, finding no note, will not think we are lost. Dimitri seemed to be getting worse, and we pushed on until we camped that night only fifteen miles from Hut Point. My main anxiety was whether the sea ice between us and Hut Point was in, because I felt that the job of getting the teams up onto the peninsula and along it and down the other side would be almost more than we could do. There was an ominous open-water sky ahead. On March 15th we were held up all day by a strong blizzard, but by 8 a.m. the next morning 
we could see just the outline of White Island. I was very anxious, for Dmitri said that he had nearly fainted, and I felt that we must get on somehow and chance the sea ice being in. He stayed inside the tent as long as possible, and my spirits rose as the land began to clear all round while I was packing up both sledges. From safety camp the mirage at the edge of the barrier was alarming, but as we approached the edge to my very great relief I found that the sea ice was still in, and that what we had taken for frost smoke was only drift over Cape Armitage. Pushing into the drift round the corner I found Atkinson on the sea ice, and Keown in the hut behind. In a few minutes we had the gist of one another's news. The ship had made attempt after attempt to reach Campbell and his five men, but they had not been taken off from Evans Coves when she finally left McMurdo Sound on March 4th. She would make another effort on her way to New Zealand. Evans was better and was being taken home. Meanwhile there were four of us at Hut Point, and we could not communicate with our companions at Cape Evans until the sound froze over, for the open sea was washing the feet of Vince's cross. We were not unduly alarmed about the polar party at present, but began to make arrangements for further sledging if necessary. It was useless to think of taking the dogs again, for they were thoroughly done. The mules and the new dogs were at Cape Evans. In four or five days Atkinson wishes to start south again to see what we can do man-hauling. If the polar party is not in, I agree with him that to try and go west to meet Campbell is useless just now. If we can go north, they can come south, and to put two parties there on the new sea ice is to double the risk. March 17th. A blizzard day, but only about force five to six. I think they will have been able to travel all right on the barrier. Atkinson thinks of starting on the 22nd. My view is that, allowing three weeks and four days for the summit, and ten days for being hung up by the weather, we can give them five weeks after the last return party, i.e. to March 26th, to get in, having been quite safe and sound all the way. We feel anxious now, but I do not think there is need for alarm till then, and they might get in well after that and be all right. Now our only real chance of finding them, if we go out, is from here to ten miles south of Corner Camp. After that we shall do all we can, but it would be no good because there is no very definite route. Therefore I would start out on March 27th, when we would travel that part with most chance of meeting them there, if they have any trouble. I have put this to Atkinson, and will willingly do what he decides. I am feeling pretty done up, and have rested. The prospect of what will be a hard journey, feeling as I do, is rather bad. I don't think there is really cause for alarm. March 18th and 19th. We are very anxious, though the pole party could not be in yet. Also I am very done, and more so than I at first thought. I am afraid it is a bit doubtful whether I can get out again yet, but today I feel better, and have been for a short walk. I am taking all the rest I can. March 20th. Last night a very strong blizzard blew, wind force nine, and big snowfall and drift. This morning the doors and windows are all drifted up, and we could hardly get out. A lot of snow had got inside the hut also. I was feeling rotten, and thought that to go out and clear the window and door would do me good. This I did, but came back in a big squall, passing Atkinson as I came in. Then I felt myself going faint, and remember pushing the door to get in if possible. I knew no more until I came to on the floor just inside the door, having broken some tendons in my right hand in falling. End of chapter 13, part 2